Well, uh, here we are at the end of our series in the book of Daniel, which is fitting because the end of the book of Daniel is also about the end of everything. Our final verse uh, from last week's passage uh, was verse 35 of chapter 11, uh, which finished with, until the time of the end, for it still awaits in the appointed time. Let me ask you, have you ever wondered what difference it makes that there is an end to your story and an end to the story of all of humanity? An end to the story of history. Think about it like this. Uh, The story is only interesting and it is only compelling and it is only really meaningful when you know that it is going somewhere, that it has an end. So kids, uh, in all of your story writing that you might do at school or just out of personal interest, allow Uncle JR to give you some advice in writing stories. Uh, Make sure when you write it that you think about how it is going to end and where it is going. Because the best examples of really bad stories are the ones where, you know, you're wondering how you can get those minutes of your life back because nothing has happened. From the beginning to the end, it's pretty much still the same situation. You're wondering what the point of the whole story actually was. Have you ever wondered how that applies to your own life? Have you ever considered how, how it ends and what And the very fact that it will end applies to your life today. You know the the classic movie, uh, Groundhog Day? Has anybody seen that? Sorry, there's quite a number of movie references this morning, just so you know, just to give you a forewarning. Uh, And they're pretty much all old movies. So all you youngins, you can go and talk to your parents about these strange films that are being mentioned. Groundhog Day, it's about this guy who gets stuck in the one day, and it is Groundhog Day. And he lives this endless existence of living the same day over and over again. And it shows what happens when a person has that. They're in this eternal loop, infinite loop of, of completely meaningless existence. And, spoiler alert, which I think is okay because it's an old film, so, you know. uh, He only gets out when he finds an end, when he finds a purpose, when he finds a meaning for his life. Does the universe have an end? Or is it an infinite cycle of meaningless particles just forever colliding with one another? Stars being born and then, you know, becoming supernovas and dying and then being reborn again. Is that all it is? Just for eternity? But if it does have an end, what difference does that make to your life? Bill Murray in Groundhog Day, he found an end for his life. But does the end of humanity and history and our lives make a difference to ours? Those are the big questions at the end of the book of Daniel that God gives us answers to. So allow me to lead us in prayer as we prepare to hear God's Word. Please join with me. Heavenly Father, we praise You, the Almighty, the King of creation, the One who has made all things. 
Lord, we, we honor you because you are the one who sits in the heavens and, and laughs. You laugh at the kings of the earth who set themselves against you and against your anointed. You laugh because you are sovereign over all things and all kings, including us. You are the king of kings. You are the one who endures forever. You are the one whose dominion is an everlasting dominion. We, in this moment, who are finite and who are bound by time, we put our hope in you. We put our hope in the one who is infinite and who is boundless. You, our God of all gods. And yet, Lord, we confess that oftentimes we are the ones who set ourselves up against you. God, we chase and we pursue our own dominion, our own kingdoms, our own kingship, queenship. And Lord, we rage against you when our kingdoms do not stretch to the lands and the hopes that we have for them. We threaten to chuck out our faith in you if you don't give us what we want. We flirt with unbelief because we forget that everything that you have given us is a gift of grace. We set ourselves up on our own thrones so easily. Lord, we confess our fickle trust in you. We recognize that we are so frail and fragile in this. And Father, we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would uh, hear our cry and our prayer. And we do so knowing that you do not reject any who come to you in repentance and in faith. And so, Lord, as we come to your word in the book of Daniel this morning, please purify us, refine us, we pray. Let your Holy Spirit work in our hearts and minds and lives to deepen our trust in you, to anchor our hope in our sovereign God, that we might live to continue to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed. Amen. Amen. Regs is now going to read for us. Thank you, Regs. Bible reading from today is Daniel chapter 11 from verse 36 and through to the end of chapter 12. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these, a god whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him he shall load with honor. He shall make them for rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. 
and he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver, and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, every one whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream, and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, Who is above the waters of the stream? How shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time times and half a time, and that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offerings is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So last week, we talked about how we can have a certain hope in a certain future because we have a God who has certainly written the story of history. He's proved it time and time again in His Word by predicting the future through His prophets, which then comes true. We saw it in chapter 11 last week where He revealed to Daniel the course of events that ended up coming to pass hundreds of years later. But what is that certain future for you and me specifically? You know, it's one thing for God to prove that He's written history by telling us what will happen with certain individuals and kings and leaders, you know, in the course of time on the world stage. But what about us? Kids, in, in, in your reading of the Bible or your hearing of it from your parents or anybody, can you tell me, does the Bible tell you what's going to happen in your life individually? Does it say, Isaac, 
when you turn 35, you are going to have your sixth child. Does it say that? I mean, that might be likely, but... Right? No, that's right, Jasper, shaking your head. No, the Bible does not tell us what's going to happen individually. It is not exhaustive enough to tell every human being what will happen in their future. But even though you may not have an individual word from God about your future, you can get a collective one. Uh, One of the reasons I called uh, this two-part series Back to the Future is because chapters 10 to 12 in the book of Daniel are all about future events from Daniel's perspective, which to us, almost all of it refers to things that are actually in the past for us. They were future for Daniel, but back in the past for us. So the title itself refers, refers to the two different emphases of these two sermons. Back refers to the events in Daniel 10 to 12 that have already happened for us today, and future refers to those things that are still in the future for us. Last week, we saw how there is just a remarkable degree of accuracy in Daniel's prophecies of things that were to happen in the future. They were fulfilled in the Seleucid and the Ptolemaic kingdoms and the kings, as well as in Antiochus Epiphanes. In this week's passage... While some events partially refer to things that have already happened, the main point concerns things that are still yet to come for us, that are still in the future. And it is in those that I hope that you find more hope from God's Word this morning about your present day. Let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 11 from verse 35. We'll be looking at this last section with three key hopes about the future for God's people. One, the future has an end. Two, the future is eternal. And three, the future can be endured. It has an end. It is eternal. It can be endured. Let's jump right into the first hope. Number one, the future has an end. Do you ever feel like uh, that your pain and your sorrow will go on forever. When we are stuck in the moment, it can be difficult to believe in the hope of the future. As I mentioned last week, for many, that hope exists only in the possibility of life getting better, in the possibility of circumstances improving. But for, that, but for the Christian, that hope is anchored in something that reaches beyond this life. Which is why this first point is so crucial. This current pain, this suffering, this daily grind, this warring of the world against God, this warring of our own hearts against God, this idolatry of setting up ourselves on the throne of our lives instead of Him, it has an end. Last week we finished at verse 35 of chapter 11, which goes like this. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And it is at this point that the narrative takes an interesting turn. You see, from here on in, the remarkable historical accuracy of Daniel's vision ends. 
So some of it has some correspondence with the life of Antiochus Epiphanes in the past, but other parts we have no record of at all. It does not happen the way that Daniel describes in the rest of chapter 11. So some readers of the Bible see this as the point at which the author of Daniel went from recounting things that he knew had happened to actually now trying to predict the future. And because he got it wrong, we know that, well, he must have written the book of Daniel roughly at this point in history, before Antiochus Epiphanes died, around 164 BC, so they say. I won't go into the detail of that, but I will say uh, that I don't agree, obviously. Uh, As I've said all along, I think this is a genuine work of prophecy and that Daniel was a historical character who lived in the 6th century BC, just as he describes. So what's going on here then? How, How do we make sense of the rest of chapter 11? Well, verse 35, as I said, is a transitional verse. Until the time of the end for it still awaits the appointed time. He moves from from this period of history to starting to talk about the very end of history. And just as verse 3 doesn't tell us that the king in question is now a Greek king, so in verse 36, there's no indicator of the shift here, of who the king in verse 36 now is. In the same way that Jesus talks about... uh, both the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and his second coming in the Olivet Discourse, uh, which is called that because it is a discourse, which is basically a, a speech, and he did it on the Mount of Olives, so the Olivet Discourse, and, you know, Sermon on the Mount was already taken, so they couldn't call it Sermon on the Olive Mount of Olives. Olivet Discourse, uh, you, you'll find that in Matthew 24 and 25, In the same way that Jesus talks about those two things in that one passage, so Daniel's vision here is probably speaking of an earthly king, but it also foreshadows the one to come. There are a few reasons why I think we should read the end of chapter 11 this way, as a collapsing of those two things happening in the one section. Firstly, we've already seen this in chapters 2 and chapter 7. You might remember, even though the the fourth kingdom of iron and clay and the exceedingly terrifying fourth beast in chapter 7 with with teeth of iron, even though they correspond to the Roman Empire, the vision also looks beyond Rome to the kings and the kingdoms that will come after it and who will defy God in the same way. They They are a type of those same kings and kingdoms. I think this is the direction that the rest of chapter 11 is pointing in, which is the second reason. You know, this seems clear, especially in verses 36 to 39, where the great emphasis, if you have a look at that passage, is on how the king sets himself up so strongly against God. He defies God. That's all, all the, the purpose of what he wants to do. And that's something, again, that we saw, especially of the fourth beast of chapter 7. I don't know, kids, if you remember that the beast in chapter 7 had this little horn who had a big mouth and he would say all sorts of things to defy God. We see that same characterization here at the end of chapter 11. And, And thirdly, let's read the end of chapter 11 and beginning of chapter 12, which describes what happens after the kings meet their end. From verse 45. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end 
with none to help him. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That is a picture of the end, of the very end. Not just the end of the king or this kingdom. And as we can all testify, because we're all sitting here thousands of years later, the very end has not come yet. But we'll get more onto that in the next point. And so finally, the reason that we should read verses 36 to 45 of chapter 11 as referring to a type of king and and type of kingdoms that will defy God beyond Rome is because the Apostle Paul himself draws on the very language of this section to refer to the things that are yet to come, things to come even for us. Let me read to you 2 Thessalonians 2, a couple of verses, verses 3 to 4, and point out to you the language and ideas that Paul draws on. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God." That's Paul referring to one who is to come. You can see on this chart, many thanks to commentator Joe Sprinkle for providing the inspiration for this for me. You can see the the correspondence between the language of of Paul and him drawing upon Daniel 11, that the son of destruction, or as the NIV translates, the man doomed to destruction, the one whose whose end shall come. He opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God, the, the, uh, the king who does as he wills, he magnifies himself above every God and proclaiming himself to be God. He magnifies himself above all. You see that through those verses. And it seems pretty clear that Paul saw in the king of Daniel eleven thirty six 36 to 45, a type or a description of one who was to come. The man of lawlessness, as he calls him. The term uh, often used to refer to this man of lawlessness uh, by theologians and Christians throughout the ages is Antichrist. Now, kids, I want to ask you something, and I I tried this on my kids, and I'm not really sure how it's going to go, but does anyone know what it means to be anti-something? Anyone? Kids? What does it mean to be anti-something? You can give it a go. Well, adults, while they're thinking of this, I want you to try and think of an example of a word that is anti-something, that captures the meaning of what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, Jasper? Anti-freeze. That is a great example. You know what anti-freeze is? Yeah, I know you know what it is, I'm sure. It is, it, anti-freeze is a chemical you put into your car, into your radiator, to stop it from freezing, right? So what does anti mean? It means, yep, 
The opposite. Yeah, that's, that's basically right. To be the opposite of something, to be against something. That's right. That is, that, that is what it means to be anti-something. So, uh, adults, do you have any examples of anti-words? Anti-perspirant. That is, I, that is the best example I've heard. Anti-perspirant. Against, it's trying to stop you from perspiring. Yep. Any others? There's a very relevant one, the rapid antigen test that you can take to make sure that you've got anti... Well, anyway. Uh, and kids, when you're in your teens, the one that you will love, trust me, is anti-disestablishmentarianism. Right. <laughs> Ask your parents about that one later. Anti. So when we have the anti-Christ, it means that this one is against Christ. He opposes Christ. And that is why he is called the Antichrist. So Paul teaches in 2 Thessalonians 2 that a particular Antichrist will come just before the end, the man of lawlessness. But you see, the term also refers generally to any who oppose and lead others to do the same, who oppose God, who oppose Christ. The Apostle John makes this clear in his first letter where he says, and he even addresses children. Well, he's actually referring to all of us, but he does say, it's a very nice, endearing term. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So it is a term referring to the man of lawlessness, but also referring to uh, those who oppose Jesus. So you see here, not only is God giving Daniel a vision of what will happen with the Persian and the Greek kings and kingdoms, but also of what is to come even beyond them, even beyond us today. He's telling Daniel about the very end. Brothers and sisters, perhaps it feels to you like you're, you're stuck in a cycle that you cannot stop. You get up, you eat breakfast, you go to work, you hammer away at the same task, Gary in the office annoys you again. You go home, you watch Netflix, you have a shower, you go to bed. Rinse and repeat. Perhaps your spiritual life feels the same. You read your Bible, you pray, you fight the same sin that you've been struggling with for years. You succumb to temptation again. You lose your cool and snap at Gary. You feel guilty. You ask God for forgiveness. And off you go again. Rinse and repeat. Nothing changes. You wonder if you're doomed to the same replay over and over again for the rest of your life. Who will save me from this cycle of death? Brothers and sisters, when I say that the future has an end, I don't just mean that it will finish, though that is true and provides us with hope. I mean that it also has a purpose. Just as God's story throughout history has a finish and a purpose, so does yours. It has an end. Hang in there. Do not give up. And hang in there till our third point where I'll talk more about this. Know that in the darkest times when you cry out, How long, O Lord? That His answer is not forever. The future has an end. And the best part is that end is only the beginning, which brings us to our second hope. The future is eternal. 
Kids, do you have a favorite story or movie that has two parts? What is it? Yeah? The never-ending story. Don't you think it's funny that it's called The Never-Ending Story and then it has parts and it ends? I think that's great. There's a, t- there's a tinge of irony in that. Anyone else? Frozen 1 and 2? Sing. My kids are dying to say Sing 2. Well, you see, another reason that I like the title to these sermons is because it is separated into part one and part two. The original Back to the Future series also had a part three, but we have no need for that. And that's because God's story, as it relates to human beings, is divided into two parts. There is this age, which is part one, and there is the age to come, which is part two. And so if, if the future has an end and the future is eternal, seem like they are contradictory points, that would only be the case if they weren't two parts if there weren't two parts to this story. And so when I say that the future has an end, I'm referring to the end of this age. And when I say the future is eternal, I'm referring to the age to come, to part two. The Olivet Discourse begins because Jesus' disciples ask him about this very question in Matthew 24, 3. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? We are all now living in part one, and part two is coming. That's what the first four verses of chapter 12 in Daniel are all about. Let's read again from verse one, but this time through to verse four. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book Until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. As both Jesus and John in Revelation affirm, there will be a time of trouble that has never been seen before, right near the end of this age. Many people call this the Great Tribulation, as perhaps you've heard. Again, something which many people have different opinions about, which I won't go into this morning. But Jesus himself talks about this in Matthew 24, in verse one, uh, 21. And so this refers to a period of intense persecution that will happen to God's people right before Christ comes again. But it's important to remember that Jesus also makes it clear in Matthew 24 that while we should consider these signs, the purpose of considering them and the purpose of him giving them is not so that we can try and predict Exactly when Jesus will return. Oh, there's a sign, there's a sign. Uh, Now Jesus must be coming in the next, if I calculate, 378 days. No, Jesus tells us in Matthew 24, 36, that no one knows the day and the hour when he will return. So we are not to busy ourselves with trying to figure that day out. The point is that we are to be ready, that we are to be prepared for his return. 
That's why he tells the parable of the ten virgins and the talents in the very next chapter. The angel, he comforts Daniel after telling him about this by referring to the fact that everyone whose name that is found in the book shall be delivered. And John picks up on that image in Revelation 20. And then in verse 2 of chapter 12, we have what some readers of the Bible consider to be the first indicator of a final resurrection. See, throughout the Old Testament, we see glimpses of life after death. And you might remember from our King series that there are examples of people being raised to life from death. When Elijah and Elisha, in their ministries, they did that, but who also, we assume, ended up dying. Whereas here, in verses 2 and 3, the angel points to something that reaches beyond this age. He points to a, a raising from life that doesn't just last another few years, but lasts into eternity. He talks about the dead waking and some rising to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who rise to everlasting life, the wise, they will shine like the brightness of the sky above forever and ever. And notice in verse 3 the phrase, those who turn many to righteousness, which points forward to the work that Christ will commission His people to do. And once again, this brings us back to Revelation, where John picks up on the same imagery, and he makes it clear that all will be judged, and that those whose names are written in the book of life will live. But those whose names are not will be thrown into the lake of fire. The future is eternal. At the end of this age, which will happen sometime in the future, an eternal age will begin. And friends, these first two hopes capture within them the essence of Christian hope. In a world that so often feels like it is without hope both at a personal and at a global level, followers of Christ have hope for both. We have hope that the wars and the rumors of wars, the slow decay of our universe, the pain and suffering experienced by every human being on the planet and every tribulation that we experience and the great tribulation that is still yet to come, all of that will have an end. And when that end comes, eternity will begin. And so our hope is not just this, that this difficult, this finite life will end, that the pain and suffering will cease, but also that at its end there will be the birth and the beginning of a new everlasting life in a new eternal creation. Friends, if you're wondering where you can find real lasting hope in this life and the next, it is found in Jesus and in Him alone. How can someone have their name written in the book of life and rise to everlasting life instead of everlasting contempt in the lake of fire? The answer is through faith in Christ alone. You see, our sin, it condemns us before God. Our own hearts and our very actions make clear that more often than not, we act like the king of chapter 11 who sets himself up against God. You see it in the way that we seek to take control of our lives rather than entrusting them and releasing them to God. 
You see it in our lack of contentment in what God has given us and in our worries about the future. And friends, if you've not yet trusted in Christ, then turn away from your sin and trust in Him today. It is only in Him that we have fullness of life and hope to get through today. It is only in Him that we have an everlasting hope for eternity. As the Apostle Paul would write in his letter to the Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you want a verse that gives you perspective on the trials and difficulties of today, here is one. What you experience now is not even worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. Or as Samuel Rutherford put it, they lose nothing who gain Christ. But what are we to do in the meantime? How do we live in the reality of that hope? How are we to endure? Does Christian hope and endurance just look like groaning and moaning through our suffering while we wait for Jesus to come back? That brings us to our final hope. The future can be endured. Now, I read in the paper this week that a recent survey discovered something like 60% of Australians are anxious and exhausted about a range of issues following the election. The rising cost of living and of housing affordability were the top two concerns, followed closely by global warming, something which... I'm currently feeling in this less than average dry season that we've had so far. Although kind of not the right week to say it, because this week was pretty good. But Robin tells me it's going to get worse next week, so, you know. Sorry (laughs) to be the bearer of bad news for those who did not know that. What's today's worry for you? What's today's anxiety Is it wars and rumors of wars? Certainly something we are currently experiencing. Nation fighting against nation. Famine. Earthquake. I mean, we had another small earthquake in Darwin just the other week. Maybe they're going to become more frequent and they're they're going to rate even higher on the Richter scale. Maybe you're worried about choices that you made years ago which have set you on a path that you no longer want to keep on walking. Maybe you're worried about the choices that you make today and and that may do the same thing for your future now. Perhaps you're concerned about being single for the rest of your life and being lonely. Perhaps you're worried about being married and being lonely for the rest of your life. Maybe you're worried about your kids and and the life choices that they will make. What parent doesn't feel the burden of, of wanting to raise up their children rightly? Or maybe you're still worried about the choices that they make today and, and you know that at any moment they could choose something that will cause you immense grief and pain. Kids, 
Maybe you're worried about the choices your parents make. Like moving away from your friends or or putting you into a different school. How do we endure the sufferings of today while we await that future glory? Let's see how the end of Daniel answers this question. In this final section of the book, the vision finishes with an instruction to Daniel to shut up the words and to seal the book until the, end of the, until the time of the end. In the meantime, he says, many will run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. And then after this vision, Daniel sees another with, of, of two angels standing on, the, on one side of the river and on another side of the river. As we saw last week, Daniel is on the banks of the great Tigris River. And a voice asks the question, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And the angel responds, for a time, times, and half a time. And when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end. When the tribulation is over, then the end will come. You might remember from two weeks ago, we saw this very time period in, uh, in Daniel chapter 7. Sorry, it was more than two weeks ago. Time, times, and half a time. The fourth beast was given dominion for that period of time. And as I pointed out then, I think that time period refers to the three and a half years, which we have also seen in the Bible, also known as 42 months, also known as 1,290 days that we see uh, in Daniel and particularly in Revelation and other parts of Scripture. And so that makes sense. As we see in verses 11 and 12 of Daniel 12, those numbers, more or less, they make an appearance. 1,290 days, 1,335 days. The time period between the abomination that causes desolation and the end is the same amount of time. And so Revelation, once again, makes use of those numbers, mostly in chapters 11 to 13. There you'll see those same periods of time of 42 months and 1,260 days. Each of those, they are referring to this period of time before the end of the age. Now, the numbers are not exactly the same. You know, Revelation has 1,260. Why the difference? Why 1,335 as well? Well, probably because the figures themselves are meant to indicate a general period of time rather than an exact period of time. It is, after all, apocalyptic literature and often symbolic. But as always with this, what matters most is the point. Notice how Daniel says in verse 8 that he heard, but he did not understand. For those of us who find prophecy and especially apocalyptic literature, uh, like the second half of Daniel and the book of Revelation, confusing, which I'm pretty sure is all of us, take heart. The very prophet himself who received the vision, he didn't understand. (laughs) He sought to understand. And look at how the angel responds to Daniel's question in verse 9. Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. As we saw in verse 4, Daniel has already been instructed to seal up the words until the time of the end comes. 
And God, God didn't give him a, a clear, high-definition vision of what would happen when Jesus came and then everything else that happens afterwards after his, until his second coming. No, God showed Daniel in pictures and in concepts the things that he would do. And these would be fulfilled ultimately in Christ. And so we now have the enormous privilege of seeing that on this side of his coming. You know, these are things that, that the Apostle Peter says are which, things which angels long to look. And so the rock that would smash the statue of kingdoms in, that we saw in Daniel chapter 2 would begin at the coming of Christ. And his kingdom will grow to fill the whole earth when one day it will be the only kingdom in existence. We have the, the privilege and the benefit of seeing how God uh, brought those visions uh, to life and made them come to pass in Christ. So how do we endure as we witness the growth of that kingdom today? And how do we endure, endure as we await its complete takeover of all creation when Jesus returns? Verse 10 says, Many will purify themselves, but the wicked shall act wickedly. As we saw in verse 3, the, the wise are the ones who shall understand. And the contrast here in verse 10 is unmistakable. There will be those, the wise, those who purify themselves or who are purified, as some translations put it. They will be the ones who will rise on the last day to everlasting life. But the wicked, they will rise to everlasting contempt. They will be thrown into the lake of fire. The ones who endure are those who are purified and who are refined. The wise. The ones who continue to throw themselves at the mercy of the King of Kings and seek to be refined by His Holy Spirit. The wise. The ones who strive for holiness who are sanctified. They are the ones who will inherit everlasting life. Perhaps you are in a place where it feels to you like you, you don't even know if you can bear the, the very next moment. Brother, sister, there is an end to your story. Not just a chronological finish, but a purpose. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 24, 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. You may not see the end for which your current sufferings are happening. You may not see or even like how God is purifying and refining you in it. But know this, as you cling to Him in faith and in hope, and as you increasingly align the desires and purposes that you have for your life with God's desires and purposes for your life, He is purifying you. And He is preparing you to shine like the stars in everlasting life. Remember our series in James. Your trials are producing perseverance and they are perfecting your faith. 
how might we endure in that work? How might we persist? I remember hearing about uh, an older saint who would often write his prayers in a book and also note when God answered them in certain ways. Over time, he would summarize those into bigger chapters of his life that he could look on years later and see how God has answered those prayers. You could do the same in the ways that God has grown you and the things that he has done. If you're the kind of person who finds it difficult to see how God is at work in you and how he is growing you, this might be something worth considering. Even though it may feel like you are treading water, even though it may feel like you are stuck in a cycle, in an infinite loop, God is always pushing you along in his purifying work. He is refining and sanctifying you even when it does not feel like it. Find ways of reminding yourself of this truth. Talk to other brothers and sisters in Christ who have known you and who have walked with you for some time. Ask them to identify where they see growth in your life, especially when you cannot see it yourself. Perhaps you're not somebody who is in that position. Life generally is actually, you know, pretty sweet for you. Can't really think of any suffering that I'm going through right now. To be honest, you, you find it a little bit annoying when people moan and whinge about how hard life is. You think to yourself, you know, why can't you, people just trust in Jesus and recognize, you know, all the good things that he's done in your life and all that he's going to do and just kind of get over it? Well, brother, sister, if that is you, God has placed these brothers and sisters in your life for your purification as well. As we'll see in our next series when we return to 1 Corinthians, love is patient and kind. Perhaps your growth in holiness, your purification in this current season is not in learning how to endure suffering yourself, but in helping others to do so. Remember verse 3. It is those who turn many to righteousness who are considered the wise. Those who shine like the stars in the sky forever. That speaks to Jesus' great commission to make disciples of all nations, which is referring to both evangelism and discipling, both telling people the good news and seeing them come to Christ and seeing them continue to grow in that discipleship. That is a work that we as His people will be on about until He comes again. And so if, that, if suffering is not your story right now, Go about this work. And not just in so-called practical ways. Do you pray for your brothers and sisters to endure? Do you pray for them to finish strong? You see, the Christian life is a, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Do you pray that your brothers and sisters will make it? Do you pray for the other members of your church, of your brothers and sisters, other Christians God has placed in your life to finish strong? God purifies and refines us through this work of disciple-making, of turning others to righteousness. 
could it be for us that one of the ways that God is enabling us to endure, especially as we find ourselves anxious and worried about our current circumstances in life, is by helping direct our focus outward to others. Brothers and sisters, we are not those who endure suffering without hope. And it is because of this that we can fix our eyes on the one who gives us hope, knowing that the future has an end, that it is eternal, and that it can be endured. These present sufferings, they are nothing in comparison to the glory that awaits us. That is the promise that the angel gives to Daniel as he awaits the future. He shall rest and stand in his allotted place at the end of the days. Likewise, for all who are in Christ, for all who cling to him, who trust in the hope that he gives us for the future, we will one day rest in the place that Jesus has prepared for us. Pain and suffering will cease. Tears will be wiped away. We have a certain hope because we can be certain that the future has an end. A future is eternal and it can be endured. Let me finish by reading to you from John chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know and you see each of us, our hearts, and our stories. Lord, even though your word has not written each of our individual stories for us to look at, that you have given us, we know, God, that every moment and every day of our lives has been written in your great book, in your story. Father, we pray that as we consider the great hope that you have given us in this life and in the one to come, Lord, may that reach down into the deep recesses of our own hearts and our souls. 
for those who are under great trial, for those who are experiencing deep suffering, and for those for whom things are going well. God, I pray that you would lift our eyes to see the King, to see your anointed one, to see our Savior, to love him, to hold on to him, and to endure this race and to finish strong. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, we plead with you and we pray, sanctify us, be at work in us until the day when Christ comes again. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.